Good morning, Christchurch. Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to to Genesis chapter 48 this morning. Genesis 48. I'll start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, such a beautiful day this morning. We thank you for the, the many... Uh, provisions that we have, the freedoms that we have, the joys and the happinesses that, that come with being part of a nation that is as free as it is. Oh Lord, we pray that we do not forget this privilege, this unique gift to be able to come to your word. And we just ask that uh, you, would, you would draw us and drive us uh, to think hard and long about what we uh, look at and, and see uh, in your word. Lord, we thank you for the message of scripture that teaches us that you are a God of salvation, that you sent your son to die and to shed his blood, and to, to give himself um, as a payment, as a ransom, as a, as a covering for us who have, have sinned and turned away from you. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. We ask that as we turn to your word, word that came from your mouth through your son and taught to us by your Holy Spirit, I pray that our hearts would be softened and our ears would be opened to hear and to know what you would have to teach us. Lord, it's in your precious and holy son, Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, Genesis chapter 48 this morning. Uh, this uh, begins what we would, what we probably should call the conclusion of the book of Genesis. Uh, this is the last three chapters of Genesis. We'll take about four weeks to cover it, but uh, mostly uh, looking at one one particular idea. It's kind of spanned out from here till the end, and this is this is the the passing on of the blessing. Uh, we've seen as we've traveled through Genesis, in particular Genesis chapter 12 and following, uh, we see the blessing come to Abraham, and then it's passed to Isaac, and then passed to Jacob. And now over the next couple chapters, we'll see it passed uh, to the sons of Jacob. This week, however, we see uh, Jacob throw a little bit of a curveball. And so we'll we'll think about this for just a minute as we... Go through it. Genesis 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that are that you fathered after them 
shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paden, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me there, given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. I'll stop there for a second. There are a lot of things going on in uh, this short little piece. A lot of cultural things, a lot of oddities that are that are taking place that, that we need to just be aware of. It's at this point that, that, that Jacob is 147. He's an old man, but in relation to his father and grandfather, he's a young man. He's about almost 40 years younger than his father when his father was when his father died, but that's a different story. He's 147. He's he's going blind. He's very weak, and now he's he's sick. And we'll find that as we go through these last few chapters, which are all happening in one kind of motion, one one period of time, probably just a day or so, uh, that at the end of it he will in fact die. He will he will pass away from his illness. And so this is this is the end of Jacob's life. I think that's the first thing that we need to take note of. Next, Joseph, in this particular situation is being once again confirmed as the uh, heir child or the firstborn birthright inheriting child. Now to understand what a birthright is, we don't again in our culture we don't we don't really have this. It's not it's not a common thing if it happens really at all. Uh, a birthright is essentially a double portion. So if you have for in, in Jacob's case, if you have 12 sons, you take all of your possessions and you divide it into 13 equal parts or sort of equal parts. And the two parts, which is the birthright, will be combined together and given to, in most cases, or culturally speaking, the firstborn son. And then the other 11 would receive the single part, which is whatever that math is. Jacob here is using Ephraim and Manasseh to express the birthright given to Joseph. What we'll see in the next chapter next week as we get into chapter 49 is we'll see the rest of the, of the sons of Jacob blessed and given their portion or, or in, in, in essence through the blessing will receive their inheritance or their portioned inheritance. But Joseph gets this unique and special treatment. And you'll note that it comes before everybody else. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the two parts 
given to Joseph or given to Joseph's sons are better parts. It just simply means Joseph and his descendants will receive the double part, which is, in essence, better than the single part. Right? We all get that two is better than one. But I think in order to fully understand what's taking place, we also have to understand what on earth a blessing really is. Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob is passing on his inheritance through words. We live in a culture that attacks or has been attacking this idea of a singular fixed, authoritative source of truth. We live in a culture that is anti-authority, number one, that is anti-singular authority, meaning God. And therefore, when, when there is no source of authority or no singular source of truth, or probably better put, singular source of morality in our case, and most and most of the expressions of it, it, it ends up being about moral issues. When there's no singular place there, it's all figure it out on your own, or whatever seems best in your own eyes, all, all this understanding of, of confidence in word goes away. So, go back two, three hundred years the foundation of the United States, or, or further back than that, and words mattered more. Meaning when a person would go to another person and sell a piece of property, the most, the most confident covenant relationship that could happen between those two people was not on a piece of paper, notarized by some other third-party person. It was the, the word of those two people and a handshake. I'm going to give you this piece of property for X amount of money. Done. And that handshake mattered. And it mattered because there was a fixed source of authoritative truth. I think the same thing happens in the ancient world. And I think, in fact, even more so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, yes, the Egyptians had this idea of more than one God. They were polytheistic. Almost every culture has been polytheistic ever. The Jewish people, the Christians and, and Muslims were very unique in our, in our monotheistic worldview. But there is still a fixed point of authority. There is still a place where that authority resides at the top. And for a person to receive a blessing meant that the God who possesses the fixed point of authoritative truth has spoken into that life. And when that fixed point of authoritative truth speaks into the life of a person, it is, by nature of its giver, a fixed point of authoritative truth. So much so that it becomes a possession. So when Abraham is given this promise by God, he takes it and he has it as if he had a thing. I would pick up this, this, this music stand. There's so many things on it. There's so many pieces of paper, I'll probably spill it. It would be like me going to somebody and saying, okay, here, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to hand this 
And they're going to take this, and they're going to, they're going to carry this the rest of their life as if they were going to have uh, money in their pockets or herds of, of animals in their possession. It's, it is a, a thing. It is not passive. It is not something that will pass away. It is something that is fixed, and it's authoritative, and it will stand. So God comes to Abraham, and he gives them his blessing. You are going to be a people. You're not just going to be a husband and wife anymore. Abraham and Sarah, they're, they're barren. They don't have any kids. Yes, they have some, some stuff. They have some possessions and things like that. But that's, that's really not that great. And God comes to Abraham and he, and he says, Hey, look, you're going to have, you're going to have many, many descendants. So, so many, there's, you're not even going to be able to count them. You're going to possess a land that I will eventually show you. You're, going to, you're not going to just possess it in your life, but you're going to possess it, and your descendants are going to possess it forever. And through your descendants, the world will be blessed. And Abraham takes it, and it's his possession. It's his, it's his, it's his thing, and he builds other stuff, and, and he has things growing in his possession. He has more and more flocks and herds and, and more and more status, but he has that blessing and he carries it with him his whole life. He tells his eventually tells his son Isaac about it. Hey, by the way, God said that I'm going to possess this land and, and I'm going to have many, many descendants, and therefore you are. And he takes his blessing. He gives it to his son Isaac. This is a blessing that Isaac is confirmed in by God himself. God confirms this and, and and Isaac also suffers in the same in the same way he has he's barren so it takes a little while for him to have kids and finally has two kids and, and he does the same thing he tells them about his blessing his possession pretty soon turmoil happens Jacob who who knows because his mother will tell him so that he's going to be the one who receives the blessing he steals it from his brother. He steals it in the form of the birthright. Here's a bowl of stew so you don't die, Esau. And he steals it by taking the blessing. He goes in at his father's deathbed when he's old and blind. He dresses up like Esau. He puts on some Esau cologne and, and he goes in with, with sheepskin on his arms to make sure that he's really hairy. And he says, hey, I'm Esau. Every time I hear that story, I think of Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Esau. And he receives the blessing. Isaac gives the blessing on to Jacob. This is why it's so upsetting for Esau when he comes in later and the blessing has already been given away. Why why doesn't Isaac just go, okay, well, let me take it back? Well, no. Remember, words, words actually matter. We live in a culture where words don't matter. They lived in a culture where that was the only thing you had. And so Jacob now has this possession, but, but he, he, he eventually he sent away, and as he sent away, he, he kind of, I think he kind of hits this wall of, of self-realization. Am I really the one who's supposed to receive this blessing? He starts to maybe question his God, or the God of his father, Abraham and Isaac. And you know what happens at Luz? God comes to him, and he's, there's this ladder that comes down, he's sleeping and God comes to me and says, here's the promise. Here's the blessing again. I want you to know that this is a confirmation to you. 
And from that point forward in Jacob's story, he carries with him this blessing. Possession of this idea that he will possess the land and his descendants, who will be numerous, will possess the land. Through them, the whole world will be blessed. This has colored Jacob's life from that point forward. And we know this because of verses 3 and 4. Jacob tells Joseph, he says, just in case while you're here in, in Egypt for all these years by yourself, just in case you forgot, let me remind you of what we have been holding to, the, the true inheritance that we've been holding to this whole time. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession. This is the setup for what's about to take place. Now, it's a little bit easier for Abraham because he really only had the one son. Yeah, he has Ishmael, and Ishmael gets, he's blessed, but Ishmael's kind of, he's, he's the maidservant, and, and, and there's lots of things, a lot of confusing things that are going on, culturally speaking, and, and, and God's plan speaking, all this kind of stuff. And so, so Isaac, pretty much, he receives the whole blessing. And then Isaac, he gives it to, to Jacob and, and Esau, but, but really Jacob seals the whole thing, and so Jacob receives the whole blessing. But now Jacob has, has 12 sons. And so he, in, in some sense, he is going to divide this blessing up as he's going to divide his property up, his stuff, amongst his sons. And that's what we'll see as we go through the next portion here. Yeah, they're all going to receive, they're all going to be a, a nation unto themselves. They're all going to possess land in the land of Canaan. But it's going to be, in some sense, divided. Divided amongst the 12 tribes. We'll talk more about that next week. But here we see Joseph receiving his birthright. Not just his birthright in possessions. He probably doesn't need any possessions. But his birthright in the more important thing. His birthright in the blessing. Jacob says to Joseph, he says, look, you had two sons here, and presumably more, but your first two two sons are going to be mine. They're now mine. This confuses us because we don't really think in the terms that they thought in. In the the Old Testament, there's no, in Hebrew, there's no no word for grandfather or great-grandfather. It's just simply son. And so Abraham could rightly say, of Joseph, which would be like his great-great-grandson, or great-grandson, maybe, whatever it is. He could say of Joseph, you are my son, my Ben, in Hebrew. And, but, but there is a distinction. We look at like Isaiah. Isaiah, when he's introduced in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, he's, he's called Isaiah, son of Amos. Isaiah, son of Amos. And, and that's probably, probably more like a surname. It's probably more like a last name, son of Amos. This happened in the Renaissance and in English-speaking worlds with names like Johnson. Right? Johnson, the origination of Johnson, is John's son. It became Johnson, and it became a last name. It became a surname. But this idea of being possessed by your father only goes to that first generation. After that, then it's Joseph. Joseph is the possessor of his other sons. And actually, what's interesting is that Manasseh and Ephraim become the possessors of their brothers. It's a little strange, but we'll go with it. 
The purpose, again, is to show us this birthright blessing. Now let me ask you a question, and I want you to be honest in your own minds. How many of you care about Ephraim and Manasseh? How many of you, and again, let's be honest, know those two names, Ephraim and Manasseh? I'll be honest, I'm going to guess, not even him. Maybe you guys are much smarter than I'm going to anticipate. But the reality is, is Ephraim and Manasseh are not really popular names in the Old Testament. They're there. I can tell you that. You see them all over, the, all over some of the prophets. But relatively speaking, it's a very unpopular name. So why does this passage matter? Why do you care? I think that there's a reality of the Old Testament that sometimes we don't admit. I think there's a reality of, and this, this happens in all of Scripture, but I think more so in the Old Testament than anywhere else. There are certain things in the Old Testament that we, are, we, will, we will understand their meaning, but we will in no way understand what that meaning means. That make sense? So this story in Genesis chapter 48 mattered deeply for the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim 400 plus years later, whenever the people of Israel come out of the land of Egypt in the Exodus, and probably even more so when they enter into the land of Egypt, or into the land of Canaan, excuse me, and start taking possession of the land. And you know what happens? Manasseh and Ephraim will receive an inheritance possession because of this story. And so here's what, here's what we know that this is teaching us. Ephraim and Manasseh are rightful heirs to land in the land of Canaan. And so whenever it comes time to divide up the, divide up the land in, in the book of, of Joshua, Ephraim and Manasseh, or the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, can go, hey, remember the story of our, of our great, our great, 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 whatever, grandfather? Remember how he took us in as a possession and he gave us an inheritance for for sake of our father Joseph, we have this land, this possession. and we all get it, right? We get, we understand that that matters to to them, and we understand that that's something that's interesting. But but not a single one of us could care five minutes longer because it doesn't really matter to us. And there are things in this in the Old Testament, and there it probably more probably most in the Book of Genesis because there's a lot of things that maybe we don't quite understand. Things like the story of, of Lot and his daughters and their incestuous relationship. Things like that. Like, really, what in the world is that? What is that teaching me? Well, probably not very much. But that's okay. It's okay. We need to understand what it was teaching them and see if there's any principles that might apply to us. Well, what might be some principles that we might see in this passage? I think we see. I, th I think there's a number of things, but I think the most important thing is is that, like every other story in the book of Genesis, we see that God doesn't work the same way that we work. Remember, Joseph is not the technical firstborn. He's the eleventh, I think. He's the eleventh son of, of of Jacob. He's not. He's not technically the firstborn, but he is in fact the firstborn 
in Jacob's eyes because Rachel is the wife he really wanted and Jacob and Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel. And we've talked about this before. But, but again, I don't know if that necessarily matters. Because culturally speaking, the only thing that really matters is that Reuben is the firstborn. Now, God does things in unusual ways. I think that's very important that we understand. And look, we see it even again as we keep going through this, this story. Verse 13. It says, And Joseph took them, uh, took them both, Ephraim, in his right hand towards Israel, who was facing the other way, his father, his left hand. Right? So he puts Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the first one. So to, to clarify, Joseph, he's going, okay, I'm going to make sure that we set this up. My dad's blind. He can't really see. I'm going to make sure that it's easy. All he's got to do is put his hands out and and blessed the right way. And, and by the way, the reason why he wants his right hand on the oldest is because the right hand is going to be the hand that gives the most. I don't really know why. It's just the culture. In verse 15 it says, And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me, from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Notice that there's no distinction between Manasseh and Ephraim. There's just simply the right hand on the, on the wrong boy. It's not really the wrong boy, though, as we'll see in just a second. And so when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to, to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a great people. He also shall become a great people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hands of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Did you see it? See what he did? He said, you're going to be, you're going to be a great nation. In fact, you're going, to be, you're going to be two great nations. Nations just simply means a subset of people. They're going to be part of one nation, but in the middle of themselves, they're going to be a great nation. You're going to be two great nations. Joseph, you're going to be two great nations. There's your birthright. But you're also going to possess a very particular 
piece of land. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I, I, needed to, I need to maybe verify this, but, and we'll see about it next week, and I might correct myself if I'm wrong. I think this is the only particular piece of land that's given. And you know what happens when they come out of the land of Egypt and go into the land of Canaan and conquer the peoples? You know who possesses this particular piece of property? Ephraim and Manasseh. You know what happens to Ephraim and Manasseh? They grow to be a people amongst their brothers. You know what else happens? They're very important. They do very many very important things. And they move the people of Israel in particular ways, unlike the other brothers. Now, not quite as much as Judah will, whenever his descendant David becomes the king. You know what happens with this blessing? Every single word of this blessing comes true. Every single word. So what do we do with this? Anybody in here a Manassite or an Ephraimite? No. And, and, and truthfully speaking, I don't, I don't even think people, in, people who are, who are uh, Jewish by, by ethnicity really know. If they do, it's very muddled. Too, much, too many things have happened to make, that, uh, to make that a clear evidence. So why does this matter to us? I think this matters to us because it, it emphasizes the reason why we care about the Old Testament. I, I think it's a travesty to think about how little concern we give to the Old Testament. I think that's a I think that's a scold to, to us, the church, today, not, not necessarily here at Christ Church, but, but as as a whole. No, I don't think that we should never look at the New Testament. I think that would be silly. But I also think that we should we should give more time to the Old Testament. After all, it is three quarters of our Bible. But there's something, there's something deeper that we need to understand. It's not just about, oh, because there's, there's so much of it, we should probably read it sometimes. No, because it, it gives us something that we cannot get in any other way. You know, when, when, we, when we look at the Scriptures, we think about the Scriptures as a whole. I, I, use this, I use this term, and I'm not the only person who uses this, obviously. It's a theological term. It's called Christotelic. Christotelic. So what I think the Bible is, is Christotelic, which means toward telic Christ. Toward Christ. Meaning everything in Scripture is defined by its movement towards Jesus. But that doesn't mean simply that all of the stories point to Jesus. I think, yes, that's true. I think, I think as, we, as we travel through the Old Testament, at any point in the Old Testament, we can get on the train, if you will, or pick up the thread, if you will, and travel our way to Jesus. We can make it to Jesus from almost any text of Scripture. But, but the Old Testament is unique in that it's a bedrock to understanding what's happening in the New Testament, number one. But also, it's a bedrock for us to understand what God's Word actually is. It's not a question. Again, we live in a society that is attacking a fixed point of authoritative truth. Our culture wants every single Christian to believe 
that everything in the Bible is mm, maybe true. Or that everything probably better said, that God speaks, is mm, maybe true. Think about the New Testament, for example. Think about, think about some of the most, the most mind-boggling things that we were studying in the book of Romans. That all things work together for good for those who love God. All things. There's no, there's no asterisks on that statement. There's no, there's no some of the things, most of the things, only the things that people do and give credit to God or the things that God's using to do good things for, for good people or for people who love Him. No, there's none of that. It's an absurd statement that everything that God is doing, everything that's happening, God is working those things for the good of those people who are His. That's an absurd statement. And it's, abs- it's an absurd statement by itself. Or, or, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is bonkers. It's ridiculous to think that God would look at a person like me or like you and go, you know what? I'm going to save him by sacrificing my son. Those are absurd words when we take them by themselves. That's why we have the Old Testament as constant evidences that what God has been doing through all of human history is he has been speaking into the lives of his people and then doing the things that he spoke. This is not Jacob's blessing. This is God's. It's God's possession that he gave to Jacob. And now Jacob is simply taking it and passing it on to his sons. This is not something that Jacob is making up. This is something that God spoke. And you know what he's going to do next chapter? He's going to speak more things into the lives of his sons. And you know what? Every time God has spoken, every time we see God speak in the pages of the Old Testament, somewhere in the Bible... Those truths have come true. God's word has never, in fact, come back void. So why should we study the Old Testament? Why should we look at stories about Ephraim and Manasseh? Because stories like Ephraim and Manasseh and the other brothers that we know nothing about today confirm for us, create a foundation for us to stand on. To hear the words that God speaks in the New Testament about the work of His Son Jesus in our lives and go, you know what? I can can stand on that. Maybe you're going through some financial difficulties and you hear the words of Jesus. He says, don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry about the food that's going to be on your table. You know what? I I feed the birds who've never worked a day in their lives. I, I clothe the grass of the fields with beautiful flowers just because... How much more do you matter to me? But if those words have nothing to stand on, they're absurd. But they do. Story after story after story in the Old Testament. We get into the New Testament. Story after story after story of God's word not coming back. And then something interesting happens as we get out of the biblical times when we get into church history. We've done a vast injustice to, to the church by trying to ignore church history because there's a lot of really, f- frankly, stupid people who've lived through, through the church. 
it's, it's really quite sad that we look at those people and go, well, I probably shouldn't pay attention to him. Well, yeah, we should. You know why? Because again and again and again in church history, God has been speaking to his people and bringing those spoken words into reality. You know what else? We live in a, a community of believers. There's a reason why we gather together in the church today because there are people in this room who have stories that, that challenge us. That when taken by themselves, you go, that's absurd to think that God would have done that. But when we place it on the bedrock of understanding that God's word is the only place that is authoritative truth, it gives us new eyes to see the promises of the New Testament. To trust in the words that we were singing earlier that break every chain. I'm no longer a slave to... I'm no... I actually thought, knowing my sermon, when, when Wes, when we started Break Every Chain, he started talking about give your chains to, to the Lord. And I was, poor paraphrase, but that's what he was saying. I thought to myself, man, can we really believe that? What Wes just encouraged us to do? Relinquish control over the burdens of our lives to the Lord, and he will heal us and free us and by themselves, those words are absurd. But, but when we look at the promises that God has given through the pages of Scripture, through the pages of history, and we see His confirming, continuous, good, true, authoritative word again and again come to reality, it gives us places to stay, doesn't it? Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, as we think about, as we think about what our, our hope is, we place our trust in you. We look at the things that you have done in, in human history that the chains that you have broken, the lives that you have changed and transformed, the words that you have promised and the words that you have fulfilled. Lord, it gives us confidence to know that when you say that you sent your son to die for us, for me, it's not something that we question. But it's truth good and glorious truth. Lord, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you that you have sent him to die so that I, so that we might live. It's in his precious name and wonderful name.